How many of you are new to Insight Meditation? Generally, welcome. And uh, just to remind everyone that Spirit Rock is uh, hopefully a very welcoming place, welcoming to everyone and all parts of yourself as well. That uh, it's a we have a deep, deep commitment to having a, a diverse. Uh, open community and uh, community where people feel safe. So I hope you feel safe today and uh, safe at Spirit Rock in general. And I also thought that uh, as this uh, day on happiness and the Buddha's way to well-being and happiness, I thought we would start by just appreciating <clears throat> our great good fortune of being able to meet like this in safety and in with good company and with enough resources to be here, enough health, uh, because there are literally billions who do not have it. And there are so many people right now who are, who are starving, struggling, uh, and we are just so incredibly blessed. And, and I think that one of the key doorways to well-being and happiness is to be grateful and to practice gratitude, not just for having more than someone else, but just for our existence in general. As uh, I think it was Walt Whitman, even though I thought, or Thoreau, I thought it was Walt Whitman for the first 20 years that I used this quote, but <laughs> then I found out it was Thoreau. He said, I'm grateful for what I am and what I have. How many of you feel that? <laughs> he goes on to say, my thanksgiving is perpetual. He says, it's surprising how contented one can be with nothing definite only a sense of existence. Oh, how I laugh at my vague, indefinite riches, for no run on my bank can drain it, for my wealth is not possession, but enjoyment of being. So we can be grateful on so many different levels, just our safety here, our comfort, our resources, but what practice really hopefully awakens in you is the gratitude just for existence, that kind of inherent or primordial sense of well-being that uh, doesn't depend on circumstances. And so that's what we'll be pointing to in this day of happiness and well-being of a Buddha. Uh, but we'll also <clears throat> spend the day talking about and hopefully giving instructions for uh, realizing the developmental process that one that each of us can go through to realize all kinds of well-being and happiness that uh, is often overlooked in our our world and um, and there really there are many roadmaps there are many systems there are many methods but there's something about the the Buddha's method of well-being and happiness that's so accessible and clear and does not require a belief system uh, it's all about as the teachings, as a very central element of the teachings, is it's all about seeing for yourself. It's, uh, there's a famous Pali. Pali was the scriptural language of the Buddha's teaching, first language that the, the teachings were actually written in. The Buddha spoke some variation of Sanskrit or, or Pali, but Pali was the first language that the teachings were, were written in. 
And there's a line that in Pali that's still used, it's repeated over and over, and it's in Pali it goes, Ehi paseko opanayeko pachetan we ditapu winuhiti. And you'd be, you may be surprised that I can even remember such a bizarre sounding sentence, but it's repeated over and over because it, it's probably the most inspiring sentence for me in all the teachings. It's, it essentially says, for all those who are interested and can be taught to come and see for themselves. So the Buddha's way to well-being and happiness is not adopting a new belief, a new religion, it's not even adopting uh, Buddhism. Buddhism didn't even exist until the 19th century as a name, as a, uh, it was more of a, a colonial overlay on the teachings that he, he offered. He offered them to be seen for oneself. And so the Buddha really wasn't even a Buddhist. In fact, the, the Buddha, when asked what he was, he, he, he wouldn't say, I'm a Buddhist or I'm a saint or I'm a this or that. All he, all he said when given many, many choices for who he would describe himself as, he says, I'm awake. And so this point, the point of this is that we, to realize the Buddha's way to well-being and happiness, we have to wake up. And what do we have to wake up out of? We have to wake up out of confusion, out of misperceptions of reality, which we're prone to have, and uh, wake up to the capacity that we have to be well and happy, that is ever-present and ever-available. And it's not something that we talk about happiness a lot in our world. Most people don't really understand what it is. It's mostly uh, pleasure that's associated with happiness, and the pleasure associated with having experiences, having stuff, having a good mood, and in the Buddha's teaching, those things are all wonderful. Having experiences, stuff, and good moods, but these are not considered to be reliable places to um, rest your sense of happiness that any happiness that depends on conditions being a certain way uh, is actually a kind of slavery, kind of bondage. I, I use that word slavery and bondage lightly in this case, but in terms of how that impacts our, how depending on certain experiences for our happiness and well-being, it keeps us bound up in a, um, in often in a state of pretty chronic state of dissatisfaction and searching. Does this make sense? So what the Buddha pointed to, what he realized within himself, and the, the gateway, or the direction, I should say, of practice is to discover and to aim for a kind of happiness that does not depend on conditions. Sometimes it's called the happiness of freedom, the happiness of being, um, of knowing a sense of well-being that, that um, is unshakable regardless of the circumstances. And mostly what we study is, is all the different kinds of pleasures and happiness we have, and we can see for we don't have to, we can reflect on it a little bit and see that most things are pretty shakable. 
Most things are, most things that we experience, um, they don't last very long, including our life. So the a well-being that is dependent on youth, happiness that's dependent on youth, not so reliable. The Buddha called this the pride in youth. Not very reliable. The happiness that depends on even health, not very reliable. He called this the pride in health. And it's, our health is vulnerable. And he even finally said that happiness dependent on life, pride in life, not very reliable. So that some point in the span of our practice, we have to resolve or to see through or maybe even to let go of the pride in youth, the pride in health, and the pride in life. Because these three prides keep us, um, keep us in a state of confusion, holding on so tightly to our youth. And when we can see this by the, the huge amount, the billions, maybe trillions spent on uh, beautification, on trying to stay young-looking and young-acting and... You know, we live in a kind of cult of youth. Does this seem agreeable to you? Or <laughs> Again, don't believe anything I say. Or just, you know, we look at this and see it, try to see it for ourselves. So an enormous amount of resources, mental and financial, spent to cling to this pride in youth. And of course we, we spent so much on our health. And of course we do, because we love ourselves. But... Um, but even our health is ultimately not the um, reliable refuge that most of us would like. And then finally, uh, aging, old age and dying is, is even though it is, it is just such a normal thing, all seven billion of us will be replaced within a hundred years. Yet somehow we treat it like the enemy, like there's something wrong. But it is, as one, I don't know if you've heard of the Wiley's Dictionary, it says the definition of birth is the leading cause of death. <laughs> so pride in life is also not so reliable. So, so we want to aim our practice at being able to Find a well-being that doesn't, um, that's not so unreliable. And it is understood in the teachings and the practices that if you aim your life, if you aim your intent, your genuine, your heartfelt desire to be happy, which, every, which binds all of us, our desire to be happy and our desire to be free of suffering, that if we aim for that happiness that doesn't depend on circumstances, then we will be able to enjoy all the kinds of pleasure and happiness in this world, all the kinds of well-being that are available to us, but without the same level of clinging. And so everything is then offered to us, uh, but without so much stickiness and without so much confusion, without so much as one metaphor that's used, not so much rope burn, as things fade away, as conditions change.
So what we'll be doing today is creating the conditions for, you could say, non-rope burn. The conditions for non-clinging, which is the, at the heart of the well-being that doesn't depend on circumstances. Uh, at the heart of the well-being and happiness of a Buddha is a, is a mind that doesn't grasp, that doesn't condemn, a mind that is open, and a mind that is, a mind that is open without grasping, without condemnation, is a mind that is also balanced, relaxed, easeful. Um, and the face of that, the expression of that mind that is not contentious and tight, the face of that is goodwill, is love, is compassion, responsiveness. And maybe even as you float through this day, other than the moments where you have to inevitably experience the effects of, of settling in and the fact that your life maybe has been moving at a different pace than what we're doing today and some of the challenges with that. But hopefully as you settle through this day, you'll begin to feel the natural affection that comes with attention, a natural goodwill toward the people you're sitting with. Uh, of course, there may be those moments where where as you open, you'll, you might hate everybody in the room. <laughs> That's often, it's often one of the experiences that presents itself. But it all moves in the direction of a kind of universal or boundless goodwill and caring and even a joy that comes as we experience some uh, happiness together. So the Buddhist teaching is all about happiness. It's all about joy. The Buddha was called Sukhiya, or the happy one. He wasn't called the great sufferer, for those of you who are, <laughs> who are probably heard so many teachings about the Four Noble Truths, the, the truth that life has within it, so many things that are difficult to bear, and you know, people, oh, Buddhism is all about suffering. But that's just, it could not be farther from the truth. It's all about happiness. If, we, if, it wasn't, if it wasn't about happiness, um, nobody would practice. But it, it is about understanding uh, happiness in a more profound, uh, more clear way than our usual association with just good moods, good fun, and uh, pleasure of having experiences and stuff. Um, but we'll elaborate on that as the day goes on. Now one of the ways that, one of the, one of the issues or one of the tendencies of mind that have prevented us from tasting what could be called the natural happiness of being conscious and awake. is the tendency to be um, obsessed, and you tell me if you have a different experience, to be obsessed with what's next. To have our eye on the, what I call the imagined future. Because of course the future doesn't exist. It's just an idea that arises in real time. Just an idea. 
but our a tendency is to have our mind fixated, obsessed with happiness being associated with some other place at some other time. So we're not actually looking for it right here. You know, life, this is where it's, life's what's happening, as John Lennon said, while we're busy making other plans. So there are many habits of mind that obscure the natural happiness of being conscious, being awake. <coughs> and one of them is a mind obsessed with what's next, the f- future, and a mind that is dwelling a lot in the imagined past, because that doesn't exist either, except as ideas. So our mind tends to dwell or get fixated, get obsessed with what happened before and what will happen next. And what happens in that process is what's obscured and what's missed is is what it's like to actually be the only place where we can find reality, right where we're sitting. So even notice right now, and I do this at all retreats, depending, independent of the topic, just notice what happens after your last thought of either the past or the future has faded away and before the next one comes. Just notice what it's like to be here in this room, just momentarily free of your ideas of thought of the, of the past, ideas of the future, even momentarily free of your ideas about yourself. That's another area that becomes very problematic if we don't recognize it. So what happens? What's your experience after your last thought and before your next one? And if anybody's willing to say, what happens after your last thought goes away before the next one comes? What's it like to be here? Calm. Calm. Peace. Peace. Quiet. Embodied. Uh-huh. Alert. Alert. Thank you. So where's your suffering? <coughs> You'll see that your much of your mental suffering is of the past. Or the projection of the past onto the imagined future. So right in the midst of, as who was it, Albert Camus? He said, in the midst of winter, I realized that there was within me an invincible summer. Right in the midst of our, no matter what our life circumstances are, no matter what the conditions are, there is a capacity, there is a, a natural peace, alertness, happiness, embodiment, wholeness, openness, freedom, that is, uh, that is waiting. But our, our minds are dwelling somewhere else. So this, there is a kind of riches, richness that each of us carries, a rich sense of happiness and well-being. But we're mostly engaged with something else. As Thich Nhat Hanh put it, the great Vietnamese Zen master, 
He said, you. And he didn't just mean one person, he meant everyone. You, who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, said, stop being the destitute child. Come home, reclaim your heritage. It's just pointing to your heritage is a happiness and well-being. All those qualities that come with being present. But your, your mind is so obsessed with what's next, you're literally like you're begging for a living. So just for a moment, stop being the destitute child. Come home, reclaim your heritage. He doesn't stop there, though. He says, then give, give that sense to, to everyone. Give that sense to, be passionate about that sense of presence. And you'll find that it's, it's a gift. And there's not a person here, no matter what your origin, what your circumstances, that doesn't have that same natural peace and ease. Uh, could say that is the natural peace and ease of your own mind that you touch. How many of you believe me? How many of you miss it from time to time? <laughs> okay. So what we'll do today is the slow process of reclaiming our heritage. Uh, you can phrase it many ways as recovering, realizing, remembering, or we can talk about it as developing. There is a developmental process. And the developmental process is, it, is where the methodology comes in. And, and the reason I say it's, it's recovering is because you don't go anywhere. It all happens right here. But at the same time, our minds are very untrained. They are so used to being agitated, like I said before, projecting the past and the future, caught up, just, just lost. It's even, there have been, been studies done at, uh, there was a study done at Harvard, probably most of you have heard about this before, but there were 2,000 people given beepers, and they were beeped 250,000 times or something, cumulatively. And people were asked what was, what was happening at the moment they were beeped. And 47% of the time, they were daydreaming. Literally half our life is pervaded by what's not present. And that went on to say that people can, are most present when they're having sex, and I forgot the second one. <laughs> but they didn't include meditators. Meditators can actually shift that balance. People who train their minds to live the only place that we actually have a life instead of being 10 days, 10 years, 10 months, 10 minutes ahead all the time. So the developmental process of our practice is to 
first and foremost bring our attention, that, which is quite scattered, quite lost in our imagination, and bring it into the living present. To, and then, how do we do that? We take our attention, which is completely natural to us. How many of you, let's, let's put it this way. Stop being, stop, stop being aware right now. You'll see that awareness is just so natural to it. But, what, but it, that's a little vague. I'm aware. Great. But that our awareness, is, it's very unstable because we're not so used to just being aware, even though it's so primary to our nature. So what we do is we give it a focus, something tangible, something that can be felt in the present moment. And so what the Buddha's recommendation was, was to, as I like to put it, put your mind or attention in the same location as your body. What the Buddha actually said was, was to direct your attention to the felt experience of your body sitting in this moment. So now I want to invite you just for a moment to feel your body. And what you will feel, you actually don't feel body, you'll feel sensation. So just feel that for a moment. And you may even notice the moment you let yourself feel the sensations of sitting, what you're doing is you're bringing your mind and body together. So this is a process, a developmental process of harmonizing our mind and body. When you bring them together, they harmonize. So often our mind is just going rapidly and we have this little still body sitting here. And so the two have to be brought together. And you may even feel a gentle stilling with even just a moment's worth of mind and body coming together. <coughs> and our practice then is, a, is a, a learning to stay here. And then what the Buddha's initial recommendation as a way of bringing our mind and body together is to connect with the felt experience of your body as it breathes. Because your body breathes all by itself. I don't know if you knew that. We often think of, I am breathing, but the body is breathing all by itself. And you'll notice that. And even when we're not paying attention to it, it's still doing it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> so we try to pay attention to that experience that we're having all the time, but we don't notice. We try to pay attention to that experience of our body breathing. So just for a few breaths, just notice that. Notice how your body is breathing. You don't have to help it along. You just have to notice that your body is breathing. And one way of thinking of it is just ride the waves of your breathing. Like waves coming in and going out. And like swinging, like a swing.
And you'll notice just even with a few breaths there, you might experience some stilling, some harmonizing. So the first part of our day will be getting used to attending to our body and our breath. And as we go along through the day, we will expand the, what we pay attention to to include the, a little bit more subtle sense of what we experience as pleasant and unpleasant and neither pleasant or unpleasant. We'll expand to include different um, other sense experiences like sounds, taste, sight, smell, all opening all our senses and trying to bring attention to that experience as it's happening. We will include as we go through the day, and I'll share why as we go along, opening to being mindful or attentive to, clearly comprehending our moods and our emotions. And finally, including and being attentive to our thoughts and our images. So you can hear from this, being attentive to, being mindful of our thoughts and images, is practice is not about not thinking. The Buddha's way to well-being and happiness is making a shift from being lost in our thoughts, carried along by the stream of thoughts, to being able to notice them, to see those thoughts that, are, that lead to more sense of happiness and well-being and those thoughts that lead us into confusion and more sense of dissatisfaction. Wise and not so wise. Wholesome, not so wholesome. But to see a thought for what it is, to have understanding of our thinking mind rather than believing every thought that floats through our mind. So as you can hear through all of these different things that we notice, the the central important element is being awake, aware of what it is that's happening at any door of perception. And what do I mean by door of perception? Whatever's happening at the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, body, and mind. Called In this tradition, it's said that we have six doors of perception, or six senses. And the sense door of mind is our thoughts, images, mixed up with moods, emotion. So each of them is an equal opportunity to develop this habit of being present. So you ready to go? On your mark? So the, Buddha, the Buddha's first recommendation is that we put our mind in our body, in our body and our mind.
And this is what he said, and he said this to a monastic audience, for, but for the purposes of today, uh, you are a monastic audience. He said, one thing, O oh monks, if developed and cultivated, leads to a strong sense of urgency, to great benefit, to great security from bondage, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to the attainment of vision and knowledge, to a pleasant dwelling in this very life, to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and liberation, what is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. So now, you don't want to believe this. You want to see whether it's true. And that's what we'll be doing. We'll be discovering what happens when we put our mind in the same location in our body as our body and stay there. So in order to do this, since we are in the habit of being somewhat disembodied, so much lost in our imagination, is to, for the most part, as much as possible, is to find a comfortable posture. And one that can be sustained for a little bit more time than our usual restlessness and agitation. And so I find it helpful to shift from side to side or front to back until you find a center point where sitting upright and relaxed is most effortless. And it's also helpful to have, to have a sense of, of firm grounding. So it's ideal if you can be touching the earth, supported by the earth in three places. Your knees, if you're sitting on a cushion, your knees and your tush on the cush. And if you're on a chair, your feet, your rear. And ideally, you want your pelvis to be very much dropped. You want your neck resting easily on your shoulders, your head easily on your neck, as though there was a plumb line right from the top of your head, right like a, a rod, right through your body. A general but relaxed straight line. And once you've found a place of balance and ease, then letting your eyes close softly. And while you're in the vicinity of your eyes, feel that touch sensation of your eyelids touching. And then shift gently to the touch of your hands on your lap or whatever they're touching. The touch of your lips. And hovering long enough in each place to where the hands and lips fade away or the eyes fade away and there's just sensation. And then your rear end touching the cushion or the chair. 
until the rear end vanishes and there's just sensation, heaviness, hardness, pressure, tingling, whatever is felt. Then sensing the feeling of your whole body sitting, feeling its aliveness, vibration. So letting the idea of the body fade away and just feel sensations. Notice a gentle stilling that happens as your mind and body come together here. And then as you sit here, feeling the gentle stillness of the sitting body, letting your body go completely into the openness of your meditation, like a block of ice that's been left out in the sun. As you feel that gentle stillness, you'll naturally be drawn to the gentle movements that your body makes when it breathes. You'll feel the effect of the air as it blows through your nostrils. You'll feel the gentle rise and fall of the chest or the belly. Or you'll feel the gentle expansion and contraction of your whole body. It's feeling the effect of the breath wherever it's most clear to you. We simply want to connect with that feeling of our body breathing and sustain that connection through the duration of our, a breath, a half breath. It may alter a little bit just because you're paying attention to it, but as much as possible let your body breathe all by itself. And just know, as the Buddha recommended, know that you're breathing in, know that you're breathing out. And know whether it's a short breath, know whether it's a long breath, a rough breath, a smooth breath, deep or shallow. But make no effort to alter the breath. Just use the breath as it is, as your anchor to this living present. Which is so different than past and future, which are mental.
the, the breath or breathing may be gross or subtle. And resist the temptation to try to alter it. Just know that you're breathing in, know that you're breathing out. Just this simple process will create the conditions for focus, for harmony, for a calm abiding. So just this breath, just this moment. Some people find it helpful to accompany the feeling of the breath with a quiet, almost transparent mental label of in and out, arising and falling, as quiet as a, and subtle as a dragonfly wing, just accompanying this breath. 95% of the sensitivity to the felt experience of the breath, 5% this little mental note, in, out, rising, falling. Even though our intention is to stay connected to this natural process of breathing, it's inevitable, though, that you will drift into fantasy, thoughts of the past or the future, and lose contact with the breath. But as soon as you 
realize that, that your attention has drifted. This is actually a sign that you've reawakened. So appreciate that you are present again and awake. And in behalf of staying anchored to this living present, we connect again with our breath, gently putting our mind and our body and our body and our mind, just this breath, just this moment, connecting with and sustaining our awareness through the duration of the in-breath, beginning, middle, end, and the out-breath, beginning, middle, end, breath by breath. This is our initial tool.
Again, when you realize that you've been lost in thought, this is natural. No need to judge this at all. It's just habit of mind. It does it all by itself. But that moment that you do realize that you've been absorbed in thought is recognize it as a moment of mindful attention, of clearly comprehending that you're now here. And that's the opportunity, the open, creative moment that we can place our attention on something that's always here, in this case, our body and our breath. So appreciate those moments that you wake up, no matter how many times you wander. Actually, that moment of waking up, there's no higher mountain to climb. That's the peak. So appreciate that. Just this breath, just this moment. Soft mind, open and receptive, but alert and precise intimately feeling the texture of the flavor of the breath of this moment. In-breath, out-breath. Not letting your mind leave your body.
five more minutes. If at any time you feel like you're straining or struggling, mindfully refresh yourself and begin again. Every moment is a new beginning.
So a brief check-in before we do some moving, some walking meditation. Uh, just good news or bad news? It's often said at the beginning of a practice period that the, or the beginning of practice, the insight is usually bad news. <laughs> um, and I guess that just means that we, if we stop, we recognize the effects of having been so disembodied, so much lost in our imagination, so much in the habits of our life that it, we experience the fruits of, of all of that. And the good news is about practice is those, whatever that so-called bad news ends up being, the, what's one teacher called the manure of Bodhi, the, the fertilizer of awakening, that, that we actually put our difficulties, our difficulties become our path. They become the, the gateway to awakening. It's the one unique thing about human beings uh, is that our difficulties can be the, become the cause of our happiness. And, that, and what it depends on is how we meet them. Not so much what it is that shows up in our life, but how it is that we relate to them. And the meditative awareness that is at the heart of the Buddha's way to well-being and happiness, the meditative awareness transforms not so much what we experience, uh, but the way that we relate to our experience. So what did you notice? And how did you relate to it? Anybody willing to say, this is time for any questions, comments, descriptions, and just know that whatever your comment or description or question might be, it might be of some benefit to someone else. Please. Aha, uh-huh. so she, it started to get calm and then almost boring, and then she had to move someplace else in your mind. So, so no rest for the weary, huh? <laughs> well, then I'd go back because I'd notice I was wandering, but I noticed that it was a very, it was a calm. Oh. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, maybe you should take the microphone, so oh, okay. if you don't well, mind. She says that she, um, yeah, so she got calm and then bored and then had to put her mind somewhere else. And then you came back to what? What did you come back to? The calmness. The calmness. Okay. Okay. You need something, Mark? All good. Thank you. Uh, so I just want to say something here. <coughs> that we do not... Um, part of what keeps our mind in a state of reactivity, in a state of restlessness, preventing us from feeling the happiness and well-being of being present is the, uh, the inability, and this is not you, this is everyone, the inability to be with the range of experiences that show up. And boredom is one of those experiences that, that when we meet it, what happens? What do we usually do? We don't metabolize it. We don't accommodate it. We don't feel, oh, this is boredom. Meet it with mindful attention, interest, clear comprehension that this is boredom. We immediately look for something that would be less boring. And what that 
what that prevents us from seeing is that boredom, any of you ever feel bored? <laughs> boredom is a mental state. It's a state of mind. It is neither bad nor good, nor right or wrong. It's a mental state. It's the truth of that particular moment. And as a state, and this is true of any state, as a state, if you experience it, open to it, you'll see that what happens to it when you notice boredom. If you were to simply meet boredom with mindful attention, no, be able to notice, oh, this is bored and this is what boredom feels like. What happens? <clears throat> boredom, as with all experiences, the universal truth that you have an opportunity, that boredom itself becomes the doorway to the deepest truth about life. Deepest truth about life? Change. Whatever arises, passes away. The only difference between a Buddha, an awakened person, and an unawakened person is the Buddha knows through and through that whatever arises passes away. And so then boredom becomes the doorway to awakening instead of the cause of restlessness or searching or needing to do something else, which keeps us in that state of perpetual searching. So we try instead in our practice, even though I completely can relate to those moments when I felt bored and I've, I've just a thousand different ways I've tried to go to the refrigerator, pick up the, these days it's just go right to your, your apps. But a million different ways, but, it, but all the different methodologies, none, most of them have become the cause of more boredom. Or if nothing more, an inability to be with boredom is just a state. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to recognize that the way out of our dis-ease is to feel it. And we'll see that it's a changing condition. And so the next time, which you will for, and everyone, next time boredom arises, it's actually a sign of awake, it's a, it's a high sign here. It's a sign that you're actually settling in. It's a sign that you're not, your usual dependency on things being exciting and stimulating is kind of fading a little bit and you're faced with life. So it is exactly what should happen. But instead of having that become the cause of more searching, we let the boredom be the center of our search. Oh, boredom. What's boredom like? I was saving this for later in the day, but you, you ruined it for me. Just kidding. No, it's great. So boredom, you know, I can say notice boredom, but boredom will have a little quality in your mind. It'll have a feeling in your body because you knew you were bored, so there's some quality there. You want to just say, oh, this is what boredom is like. And then feel it. Notice what happens to it. And you'll see that it's changing. And then something new, because of the nature of our life, another universal truth is change. You said change. It's something else will present itself. And then we want to be available for that. So if we're still looking for something else, we're missing the unfolding of our life, which is always a, a, an unfolding present moment. And you don't have to move. You don't have to go anywhere. Life is happening. So where are all those thoughts you had during that sitting? Gone, and something new presents itself. So thank you for bringing that up. Anyone else?
please, could take the microphone over there. Um, for me, um, I immediately, when you said to think about the, bad, the quote, bad news and the good news that came from the meditation, I immediately equated the bad news with neg negative thoughts. So, for example, I was experiencing uh, thoughts of things that I have not resolved in my life. Yes, that's... And that's very dispositive of the person I am. And Mary, what's the word you just used? Dispositive. In other words, I connect it with negativity. I connect those types of thoughts with negativity, and I okay. immediately go to that. So that's but your default? You mean you're prone to, precisely. to incline toward negativity? Precisely. Okay. But the good part of that was that now I know that it's not a negative thing at all. It's just part of my experience. Exactly. And which is a wonderful thing to be able to connect those things in a positive way. And then ultimately, the, the, the best thing about the meditation was that I actually was very cognizant of when the rain was happening and then when it stopped. So you were so you were I was really present like to life as it's actually more, happening. Yeah, more in the moment mm -hmm. of the whole experience. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. So that was awesome. So, so thank even you. our even our negativity, even our negative thinking, becomes the manure of our practice when we can't. What's the di what's what makes what makes the difference? Is the, the what makes the difference is the presence of mindful attention. Once mindful attention is brought to something, it loses its stickiness, it loses its power. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. So once you notice negativity, then it's just negativity, negativity being known. It's not good, bad, right or wrong, it's just another mental state or another mental habit being known. Of course, you may have many reflections about that and, and you can also notice that, but the fact that you've just been mindful of that, as opposed to carried away by it, lost in it, unaware of it, vir living in virtual reality, basically. Once you wake up to the fact, oh, that's just a, that's a, that's the habit of negative thought. Great. That is an equal moment of mindfulness as being aware of a joyous feeling, because each one allows you to see that, yes, this negative thinking doesn't define me. It's a changing condition. It's just negative thinking. And then the more we, of course, the more we're mindful, we also then notice more of what else is happening, the rain falling, the passing of the rain. Thank you. <coughs> Anyone else notice anything? Please, right up here is the... Well, part of the reason I wanted to come today is because I knew that this day would be a difficult day. It's this transition between two weeks of family vacation and going back to work tomorrow. And I noticed when I was sitting that I was super caught up with the past and the present at the same time, in the future, sorry, um, processing the last two weeks of family and feeling lots of things about going back to work. Yeah. I was so caught up, and I, I noticed maybe two or three times during the sit that I was preparing 
to pass judgment on the sit as soon as it was over, which I think I do every day. Great, great um, insight. <laughs> and I, I thought, I just noticed that I was gonna, I was waiting, you know, for the bell to ring to think, well, that sucked, you know, or gee, <laughs> I'm really caught up right now, you know. So I just, I guess I wanted to hear your thoughts on. Um, well, I just that loved how many, how many moments of mindful attention you had to what your mind was doing, and that's the key. It's not to change the content of your mind at all here today. We, like I said before, it's equal opportunity mindfulness, anything you're aware of. It sounds like you, are, like you hypnotically induced a difficult day because you don't know how a day will be. Yeah. And mindful attention, and when we develop the continu some continuity of mindful attention, we're, we, we begin to constantly realize that we don't know what's happening next. And so then you can actually see, as you, I think you did, see the way your mind uh, it was it starts to anticipate a bad moment or a, a bad day or a difficult day. And then that just becomes another thing that gets aerated with mindful attention. Huh. Look at my mind just has the habit of thinking things will be lousy or inclining toward negativity. And that moment becomes a moment of freedom. I don't have to believe that. That's just another idea. So it's great. So the more moments you can notice of whatever your mind is doing, it's great. We're not going to completely fix our mind today. We're going to make that shift from being just carried away by our habit, carried away in our habits to noticing. Wow, isn't that interesting? But you have to understand that um, uh, the, the thought of your life, the thought of your past two weeks, and the thought of going back to work is not life. It's a story. And the only life that we really live is an unfolding present. It's just here. So in one way, everything that you just went through doesn't even exist, except as a memory arising in the present moment. And your future job this week doesn't exist either, except as a thought of future. So we don't. So what you're. So we want to make a shift from being carried in, carried away by that story of oh I'm going to be going through a hard day today and and I just had two weeks with this and now I'm going to have this, and just to notice that as our story, and to treat that as another experience that's happening in this unfolding present. The fact is you didn't go anywhere at any time during these last three weeks. You were right where you were, having a whole range of different experiences. Always coming, always going. So we just want to learn to be able to stay here as we go through our projections of the future, our memories of the past, our pleasant moments, our unpleasant moments. And you can be, as, as you realize in the teaching, you can be still. That's the happiness of a Buddha that sees whatever arises, passes away. So it sounds great. <laughs> You're going to have a day. <laughs> hey, over here, please. Do I have to? <laughs> if you speak really loudly. I'll stand up. I just returned from India for the first time. Cool. And I'm very jet lagged. So I noticed that. One of the reasons I came today was just to feel safe, whatever that word means, but uh, it, it seemed intuitively safe to come here. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, found myself sleeping because I'm jet lagged 
and then would wake up and hear the voice, <coughs> your voice, and have a sense of feeling safe. Beautiful. So jet lagged from traveling <coughs> from India, what a blessing to be able to travel and expand your view of the world, etc. And now here feeling uh, intuitively drawn to be here to feel safe and yeah, I, I like practicing when I've been away or <coughs> done something really different just because it can be disorienting to come home and it's, there's a way of if I can settle my mind into my body, I, I start to feel like I can handle whatever that transition period is. And great. Beautiful. Please. So I noticed a relaxation in my mind. So I noticed a relaxation in my mind where the past two and a half weeks I've been struggling with this issue that seemed to have like a life or death quality to me, which involves all the past and the future stuff you were talking about. Yes. And even starting coming here and starting to sit, it was right there. Yes. And I noticed that as I did the concentration on the breathing, that suddenly the thoughts that were intruding were actually much more mundane thoughts, like lighter thoughts. So the thoughts were still coming, yes. but the range increased. So it was no longer that one issue and it was no longer so heavy. Yes. Um, Beautiful. And so that was really... Great, yeah. I, I think that the weight of our issue depends a lot on our... Um, it gets fed by lack of attention. So if you have some kind of continuity of attention, everything, like I said before, loses its stickiness. And so then you also see that that issue, whatever our... Does, everybody has their big issue. That big issue, it, we start to see when, we're, when we have some continuity of mindful attention, that issue is momentary. It's not monolithic, that it's actually interrupted by all kinds of sense experiences and it's just thoughts that keep repeating themselves over and over. And then if there's a little more space in your mind, then you start seeing the more mundane things and then you also start to hear the rain falling and the, and the rain ending. And so that you see that life isn't that big issue. It's not, it only colors our attention when we're not able to pay attention to it in a, um, in a mindful way. So th thank you, and I'm, I'm glad you gave yourself the gift of more continuity of mindful attention. There's somebody in the back there. I didn't realize we would check in for so long, but it's fine. I love it. Hope it's okay for all of you. And even if it's not, you want to feel that too. <laughs> Please. Uh, thank you. I'd just like to share that when you said um, every moment is a new beginning, I was kind of like in and out of thought, but when you said that, I couldn't help to just laugh inside. Like it was just like, I don't think it was laughter, but it was more of like, aha, how is so right? That's so true. Like we think about like, oh, I could do this then, I could do that then, I should do this then, 2016, blah, blah, blah. And then I automatically flip to just dancing in my mind. I just dancing and like flowing. It, it's just, I couldn't even explain these moves that I was doing in my own mind. <laughs> I, it just, just felt good. Sounds like the taste, of, it felt a little free. Yeah, it felt free and happy. And then I was like, and then my attention turned to, I have a neck injury that I sustained last year. Uh, and I didn't pay a lot of attention to it. And then 
like uh, uh, the woman here could hear the, um, the rain outside, but I can hear the intricate movements of my neck. Because when I move my neck, I can hear click, 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 click. So after dancing, I could hear the click, <laughs> click, click, click in my neck, which is, a, I think, it's a good indicator that I need to really pay more attention to my neck. Yes. <laughs> well, the truth is, the more you're here, the more you will notice. And the more you notice of what is actually here, the more interesting it will become. And be, being here will be more interesting. And then the chronic desire of wanting to be somewhere else will start to ease up a little bit. So every, there's so much richness, so much happening right here. Not always pleasant, but there's so much happening. If we can take an interest where life's actually unfolding, your, the obsession with what's next will quiet. And your body will not be living so much of the time in a state of suspended <coughs> happiness, waiting for that future that never arrives, waiting for that bell to ring, waiting for the end of the day, waiting for the whatever it is that we're chronically waiting for, because there's so much happening already. So what a, one of the ways, one of the, one of the ways that the Buddha spoke about about um, well-being and happiness is, as I spoke about earlier, it is the lessening of the state of um, craving, lessening the state of, of grasping dependency, the state of, um, the state of having our well-being dependent on what's next. So if you, if you do develop this habit of being present, being present each moment, not only is it a new beginning, but it, a moment of mindful attention is a moment of non-grasping, non-clinging, non-contentiousness, non-condemning. So this is why we want to infuse our life with as many moments of openness as we can. Because you will notice that you will suffer less. We suffer when we are waiting, when we're hoping, when we're in a state of suspended happiness. We don't suffer when our mind is in a state of non-contentiousness, non-postponement, non-clinging. Does this make sense? So don't underestimate the power of simply noticing what you're experiencing. It's really the gateway to well-being and happiness. And of course, whatever you're noticing will not always be pleasant. In fact, the first insights are often our body is tight, heavy, tired, our minds have been obsessed with our big issue, uh, with our to-do lists. That's what our habit is. Uh, but as you see that, as you notice it, you're literally erasing the, um, the grasping and the aversion in your mind that keeps feeding your, your mental habits. So now just notice again 
just being aware for a moment, whatever you're aware of, even if you're aware of wanting to go to the restroom or wanting to move a little bit, notice that just as it is. Without pushing away that feeling, without clinging to it, whatever is predominant in this moment. Okay, there's so much more to come, but um, we are going to, even though it's raining, we are going to balance our sitting practice with walking practice. It's not a break from the sitting. It is just the continuity of developing our orientation uh, to the present moment, the orientation of our mind that's usually scattered into our body. And so that the, an equal opportunity to practice mindfulness is in movement. Buddha actually talked about the doorway to well-being and happiness as being mindful in four postures, sitting, walking, standing, and and lying, sitting, standing, lying down, and moving to and fro. Sitting, walking, standing, lying down. So there's no exclusive. It's not just on your cushion. As you'll see that as I shift from sitting to standing, standing right now, did I lose a sense of aware presence, mindful attention? There may have been a few moments where I did it unconsciously, but here I am again, the same aware presence as I had when I was sitting. So it's not exclusive to sitting, even though the statues look like that's where it's at. (laughs) Where it's at actually is just being aware of what you're doing when you're doing it. And so right now, I'm aware of standing, and I'd like to invite all of you to be aware of standing as well. And I, I want to just hover here for a few moments before you go out just to encourage you at any point during the day when we're, while we're sitting, if you find that you are falling on your face and instead of the room looking like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem the whole time, feel free to at any time mindfully stand up and just be aware of the standing posture. Be aware of the contact of your feet on the carpet until feet and carpet fade away and you just feel sensation which is what you actually feel anyway. And then feel the stillness of the standing body and either stay connected to the feet touching the floor or connect again with your breath just as you did in the sitting as your primary support or anchor. So for the next 10 seconds or so, 30 seconds, just do some standing meditation.
So now we're going to spend the next 20 minutes finding a place where you can walk back and forth and doing the same mindful attention to movement, to just the movement of your steps, lifting and placing your steps, the turning around when you hit the end of your little pathway. We walk to and fro to remind us that the point of our practice is always arrived at at the step we're taking. We're not going anywhere. It's to just arrive in our steps. So we don't just walk to go somewhere. We walk back and forth and keep arriving in each step. So the destination is right where you are. So once you find your little pathway, you feel your legs, your feet. Whoa. And you notice that your leg is lifting and your foot is placing. And then you hit the end of your pathway. You're aware of turning around. And then again, lifting and placing or stepping so that you actually feel that experience. Every step, this is so portable for your life. Every step bringing you into the living present, anchoring you to the only place that life actually is. You will notice in walking, since we, we're used to toppling forward to the, wherever we're going, you'll notice your mind goes into what's next, but you just notice it, come back to your steps. Same way, when you notice your mind wanders, you come back to your steps. So walking to and fro, eyes a little bit ahead, so, but you don't have to look at your feet, but you want to feel them. And you want to walk. There are four things I'd like you to remember. Walk at a pace that you can stay relaxed. This is about pace. Relaxed, attentive, one that you can stay attentive, one that you can stay in balance. So if you walk too slowly, you may lose your balance. Walk too... Too quickly, you may not be so attentive to your steps, so attentive, balanced, relaxed, and interested. You'll notice that if you slow down a little bit, you'll notice more, and if you notice more, you'll be more interested. But don't turn, it's not meant to be, you're not meant to force yourself to, to walk slowly, but to walk at a pace that you can stay with it. And. Uh, You'll, hit a, you'll hear a gong in about 20 minutes to bring you back. And uh, so find a place outside or even in the back of the hall here. And sorry, it's, if you don't have the proper clothes, you can stay in. But uh, please do the walking. And you'll notice that when you end your walking, uh, that transition period, you also want to stay in your body and stay attentive so that the whole thing becomes a seamless flow of mindful attention. Are we okay to walk with an umbrella? Okay to walk with an umbrella as well. <laughs> By all means, take care of yourselves. And, and for those, I, I will come out a little later, but I would also be open to meeting with anybody who wants to check in one-on-one -on -one, uh, about the practice who may not have felt comfortable to speak publicly. So please have a continuously mindful walk.
looking for the owner of a gray Land, o Land Rover, license number 6BM-D693. Anyone here have that car? Is there any chance you could move your car? One of our residential retreatants got blocked in. She parked in the wrong lot. and then So thank you very much.
Just before we sit, I thought I'd just do a little what we call a dharmet, just a few stray thoughts. As I mentioned earlier today, the the chosen methodology in our kind of cultural life, our our day to our everyday conditioning is when the going gets tough, the tough go shopping <laughs> to the refrigerator to the smartphone somewhere to if I were to offer meditation instructions for uh, let's say you you just arrived and you had no idea what you were going to be doing on this day of happiness and well-being and I said to you Distract yourself any way you can. Gratify every desire. Feed the wanting mind. Hold on tight. Get lost in thought. Cling. Few chuckles. But that's literally what we're taught every day. Is to, the way to happiness is to is to uh, direct our attention away from the present moment. And what it's created is a culture of massive, massive addiction that promises happiness, but actually moment by moment blocks our access to what is ever available and ever present. So when you consider the Buddha's way to happiness and well-being, you're encouraged to basically decide that for this experiment, and I, for your consideration, to instead of going to your smartphone phone for refuge, instead of going to the mall for refuge, the TV, to the refrigerator, to some kind of compulsive contact with something or someone, instead go to, as the teachings, go to the Buddha for refuge, which means go to the fact that you're aware. So you can reflect on the historical Buddha and and the fact that, you know, he woke up, but the Buddha means that in you which is awake. It's the last place we look is that ever-present wakefulness and clarity. That's our natural state, primordially present. So we, instead of, so instead of the instructions being go to the mall for refuge, go to the Buddha for refuge, or go to aware. And then the second instruction is instead of going to how things should be, could be, would be, were, I hope they'll be, go to how things are. First and foremost, does not mean in any way that we don't do everything passionately to 
heal ourselves and the wounds of this world and all that. But first and foremost, we go to seeing clearly how things are. So this is what we call going to the Dharma for refuge, to the, to the way nature is, to, the, to, the, to whatever it is that's happening in this present moment, as you know it. First and foremost, get acquainted with things the way they are. Because otherwise, if you're constantly moving toward how they should be, you're in a state of reaction. And your reaction will inform your actions in a way that creates and sometimes more tension. And the reactions that we're often having about the way the world is, is we're angry. And as the Buddha's teaching suggests, again, part and parcel of the Buddha's way to well-being and happiness, is that hatred never ceases by hatred, by love alone. Whatever puts us in a state of openness and then allows us to respond to the conditions that we find ourselves in instead of being in a state of reaction. That just feeds the the tension. So we go to the Buddha for refuge, be awake. We go to the Dharma for refuge. Just what's happening right now? How is nature unfolding? What's happening in my body? What's happening in my mood? What's happening in my mind? What's happening in the world? Let me see it clearly. Let me open to it the way it is, first and foremost. The the wise response comes out of clarity of perception. And there's three things that that tend to cloud our perception. We tend to take things that that um, that are changing to be Uh, permanent, be absolute. We tend to see things monolithically as they are just one thing. We forget that life is a dynamic of change. So when we misperceive life and see it as as, uh, stationary, we continually create how things are in in some kind of objective view and and not realizing that everything everything you do and everything that's happening is affecting everything at all times and things are dynamic. So one of our common misperceptions is we take what is impermanent to be permanent or solid. We take that which is in this world that is, you know, in terms of our personal, we take that, those things that are actually unsatisfactory, unreliable, and we, we think that we can find lasting happiness in things that are changing. So that uh, we misperceive the, the unreliability of things. And then the last misperception is we take everything personally. Everything's about us. So that prevents us from seeing the selflessness of how everything is influencing everything. And that's just a brief commentary on that. So that's all to say that we want to be able to see with clarity of perception. We want to widen our view. So the, the art of meditation is the art of making space, of widening our view so that we're not just seeing things from that very narrow perspective of what it means about me. And, that's, and we get so bound up in what things mean about me, and we don't even realize how much we're operating from our conditioning, our privilege, our color, or whatever it might be that makes us un- unable to see in a wider sense of how much we're impacting each other and being impacted. So we want to... Um, 
So we want to see clearly. So that's, I go to the Dharma. I want to see clearly. So I want to be awake. I want to see clearly. And then the last thing, instead of seeing just how things, what things mean about me, we want to, we want to not go to ourselves for refuge, me and mine. We want to go to uh, the, what we call the Sangha for refuge, the community of, of wisdom, the community of teachings, the community of practitioners, people who also want to wake up. We need that support. Nobody does this alone. So that's part of, it's making for, if we want to discover and experiment with this practice of well-being and happiness, we, the most important element is be aware, see what's actually true, and try to find company of other people who are doing that. That's a, a very central piece of this. Doesn't mean you have to be a joiner. Doesn't mean you have to be a Buddhist. Like I said before, in the, as the day began, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. Buddha was awake. But he gathered with him those who were interested, who could be taught to see for themselves, and he developed this, and he saw the power in this, of the support of Sangha, of community, of, support, of other people who practice. Again, not just as a, a band of believers, but just the lifting power of practicing with other people. It's like the, the flock of birds that fly together get 73% more lifting power by flying in it together. It's the lessons from geese, maybe you know about this. They help each other. So that's essential that we, that we have, uh, we look for something that we can rely on. Because clearly the, the, what we've been taught to rely on, just the medicine that we're encouraged to take every day to go shopping or whatever, the medicine causes more disease. It's made us chronic, chronically addicted, chronically dependent on, on conditions being the way we want them to be happy. And that hasn't made anybody happy. It's made us addicts. So we, don't want, we want to be free of that dependency. So much suffering caused from addiction of one sort or another. You know, another new addiction is smartphones and people have lost their intimacy. And people cannot even sit with themselves alone without having their machine nearby. It's a brave new world. And so we're just trading one addiction for another. So anyway, not to, it's not all bad news. A lot of people are waking up to this fact. <laughs> so we want, want to slowly, slowly come out of the narrow world of our preoccupations, our fixations on the past and the future. There's a little narrow band of I'm, I'm the one that's come from the past. I'm, I'm passing through this present on my way to happiness in the future. That whole story that just plays through our mind it keeps us, keeps us oblivious to the, the richness of just being together with life. I mean, there's nothing juicier than being together in this room right now, having our senses open, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, our body, just being open. But we've gotten so caught up in our little internal world that we're oblivious and, that we're, and we don't have the 
not taking in the nutriment, the nourishment of, of our senses being gladdened by being present and our hearts being um, available to respond with caring and compassion. The Dalai Lama says caring and compassion is what brings happiness to your life. That's what, it's not hiding away in fear and dullness, it's opening. The way out is in to the middle of it. So the Buddha's way is, as Thich Nhat Hanh, who I also quoted earlier, he says, no mud, no lotus. <laughs> you open to life, the challenges, the difficulties of life. You don't just run from it. As Rumi says, your old life was an endless running from silence. He says, inside this new love, die to that running. Stop running away from this moment by running after this or that. Settle back. And you can tell, even in a moment, if you're not looking ahead and not looking back, you're just here. There's a settling, there's a stilling, a heart softening that can happen. And you do this over and over again. Not only do you, you become open and soft, but you also become clear, and clarity brings intelligence discrimination, discrim you know, discernment, and, and the heart's response. So we, want to, we don't want to miss that opportunity to be responsive. So let's see, there was just a few more things I wanted to say and then we'd sit. So I'd like to, you to take that in as you sit today when you're, remember, when you're forgetting, why am I, what am I supposed to do here? <coughs> If you, do, if you remember only one thing, am I aware? That's the Buddha. And what am I aware of? That's the Dharma. What's the truth right now? And then be aware of the support of each other. <coughs> the first kind of happiness that the Buddha spoke about was the was the happiness of what we call sense pleasures, the pleasures of the senses. And that human beings need sense pleasures. They need to have their senses gladdened by beautiful sights and sounds and smells and tastes and bodily sensations, etc. That if, we're, if we don't have if, we don't, if we're not able to enjoy and take in the nutriment or the nourishment of our senses, we don't thrive, just like a baby that's not held doesn't thrive. We need, to, we need to be awake to our life. Take it in. So, And the Buddha talked about the whole range of sense pleasures that human beings can experience. The pleasure of good company, pleasure of solitude, the pleasure of meals, of, of um, just there's just unbelievable amount of pleasure available to people, and sense pleasures. And even though the sense pleasures, he, he said there are three things you need to know about them. Otherwise, you're, you'll have that mistaken perception of what brings true happiness. You need to know their pleasure which is basically an invitation to experience the pleasures of the senses. You also need to know their defects. 
their difficulties, that they're fleeting. And if you depend on them, they become the cause of addiction. Because the mind experiences a loss every time something fleetingly passes away. And in that wake, the tendency is is to want another one, want more. And so we get caught up in a state of waiting and wanting instead of actually being able to enjoy the sense pleasure. And as William Blake said, as he said, she or he who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. So we, we lose that capacity to experience the joys of life, the pleasures of life, and let them come and let them go. Our mind gets caught up in trying to hold on to the pleasure, trying to hold off the, the unpleasant. And that grasping, that tension in our mind, um, adds to our misery. So that's the defect or the dangers of suffering, and then uh, the dangers of sense pleasures. But then the, the last thing that the Buddha said, there's the third thing, is that you, you, want to, you want to understand what it's like to be free with or free of the world of sense pleasures, not so dependent on them. You want to know that freedom, that, that know that feeling, of under, that understanding that, yes, things are incredibly pleasurable, but they pass. This life is pleasurable, it passes. Things are painful, but that also passes. So that we, we know for ourselves the freedom, a well-being that doesn't depend on the, pleasure, ple, the presence or the absence of a pleasure. Otherwise, the, that same world of sense pleasures that is so much uh, needed for us to thrive in our life becomes the source of our slavery, source of our, our being bound up. Again, I apologize for using that word, slavery, but it, I say it metaphorically. I know that's a loaded word. Um, So we have to have pleasure. So it's not denying yourself pleasure. Got that? (laughs) And in fact, the last thing I'll say is that the Buddhas saw that there are a few things that are the proximate cause, what allows us to experience pleasure the most. What allows us to experience pleasure? Now, you may think, oh, mindfulness allows you to experience pleasure, which it does. But what he saw is the true cause of being able to enjoy your life and enjoy the pleasure of the senses is to, is to live your life in a way that is non-harming. Is to practice harmlessness, to practice ethics, morality, to not to kill, not to steal, not to exploit with your sexuality not to take intoxicants to the point of carelessness and heedlessness, and to tell the truth and to speak timely for the benefit harmoniously, both internally and externally, that to establish a foundation in our life of non-harming. And keeping the basic training precepts of not killing, stealing, sexual exploitation, intoxicants, and... (laughs) 
and truth and harmonious speech, that's just one level of it. Another level is being aware of the unspoken uh, biases and ways that we, um, that we get caught up in, we cause harm through a certain kind of obliviousness to power, to privilege, to, you know, so many, so many elements. We're not, we won't elaborate on that so much today. But non-harming has, has multiple levels of meaning, but we start as that doorway to well-being and happiness. We start being super careful with our speech. I realized when I used the word bondage or slavery, I realized as that was coming out of my mouth that that's a, that's a word that we have to be sensitive to using. So much harm has been caused with that. But it's, I said it anyway, but I want to be conscious of what's coming out of my mouth. And ideally, hopefully, all of you will be as well. So our speech, our, our, our shared resources, not taking that which is not offered, uh, stealing, the effect of stealing, the, the effect of intoxicants, you know, all of that. If we just, if we just stopped... Um, taking intoxicants to the point of carelessness or heedlessness. A different world. So much suffering avoided. If we stopped killing, wow. If we just kept that one precept of even not killing human beings, let alone all the animals, and all those myriad beings that don't want to be killed, which is true of all beings. So that reverence for life, that is what becomes the, that's the ground of happiness and well-being and the ability to enjoy the world of sense pleasures. So that's all I want to say about that. We, as we go along through the day, I'll talk about the, how the Buddha's understanding of happiness evolved. And what, what we're doing today is both opening our senses to the whole world but we're also creating the inner conditions to experience what the Buddha discovered as a more refined kind of well-being and happiness that we've been actually um, obscuring or, or we've been, that's been hiding in plain sight. That's why it's sometimes called an open secret, the happiness of a mind that is well composed and concentrated. We'll, we'll get to that after lunch, but for now let's sit again and Keep creating those conditions, creating the conditions of mind and body coming together in harmony. And I'll just say, although this is not the only social action that you will be involved in in your life, because there's just endless need for it, but this, in some way, is the most radical social action that you can engage in, which is changing your heart and mind. Because as one of my teachers put it, the world is the way it is because people are the way they are. And as long as people are the way they are, the world will continue to be the way it is. If we want a peaceful, more inclusive world, there has to be wide-minded, peaceful people 
It's not something you can impose on the world. It has to start within each of our hearts. So one of the ways that we do that is to keep quiet, find that comfortable, erect posture. Again, shift from side to side and front to back till we find that center point. And then feel your rear on the cushion or the chair until that idea of rear and cushion and chair fall away and there's just sensation. The same with your hands until there's just sensation. Your lips until there's just the felt sense. Your eyes there's just touch. And the form or the shape of your body until there's no body, there's just sensation, vibration, that living quality. And then once again, the sensations of breathing, being known, being felt, breath by breath moment by moment. And we will continue to let the breath be our primary support or anchor. However, during this sitting, if other physical sensations become stronger than the sensations of breathing, we can let the breath recede and let the, our attention rest in the foreground of whatever that predominant sensation is. Could be aching or burning, stabbing or itching or tingling, cool, warm, vibrating, pulsing, throbbing. If any sensation becomes stronger than the breath, just attend to it, accept it. Notice its behavior, what happens to it as you feel it. And as that predominant sensation fades, becomes less compelling, predominant, or passes away completely, then once again, as a support, anchor your attention in the breath. Same goes with sounds. If sounds become stronger than the breath, just be aware of hearing. No need to comment on what's being heard, just the process of hearing, arising, fading. So recognizing with each experience the nature of change, rising, fading. And as the sound fades, we connect again with our body and breath. Just this breath, just this sitting body, just this moment. Soft mind, but alert. Gentle attention, yet precise. 
intimately feeling the sensations of the in-breath and the out-breath. You may also notice that there's often a gap between the out-breath and the next in-breath, a space between the breaths. It's often in that space that our mind drifts into fantasy. So we can, it's helpful to sustain awareness in that space between the breaths if you notice one by feeling your whole body or being aware of that openness or finding some touch point like your lips or your hands. Just hover there until the next in-breath calls your attention so that there is a continuity of mindful attention. Just this moment, just this breath, or whatever is predominant. each moment fresh, free of the past, free of the future, just as it is.
sinking into the breath, sticking to it, spreading out all around it, not missing any part of it, beginning, middle, end of the in-breath, beginning, middle, end of the out-breath. A sustained attention to the process of the breathing body breathing. And then as other experiences call our attention, we connect and we sustain with that experience to recognize its changing nature.
Is there awareness in this moment? Are you aware? What are you aware of? If you're aware of waiting for the bell to ring, notice that feeling of waiting, what it's like, how it feels in your body, and what happens to that feeling when you notice it. When you hear the sound of the bell, simply be aware of hearing. As the sound fades and you're ready to open your eyes, be aware of the opening of your eyes and any other movements that you make, bringing a continuity of mindful attention, awakened awareness.
So before we take lunch, just a brief check-in again about uh, anything you, anything about the instructions, anything uh, you noticed in the sitting or the walking, uh, questions, comments, descriptions, concerns. Uh, working with working with physical sensations, uh, breath, etc. Please, right there. Wait till wait till the microphone gets to the pink woman in pink. So what do you tell people who have chronic pain? And when they go into their awareness, they're aware of the pain. Yes. Go shopping. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's not a laughing matter, although we have to laugh. Otherwise, it's many things. Otherwise, it's not funny. Uh, but uh, it is, it, it's been shown by... Um, many, um, by literally a sample of thousands and millions, that probably the most, most effective way of dealing with chronic pain is to, rather than distract oneself from it, to actually feel it. The, I don't know if, I, probably most of you by now, because it's almost ubiquitous in our culture, but there are now almost attached to every hospital in the U.S., the mindfulness-based stress reduction clinics, started by um, by John Kabat-Zinn, who did a lot of his practice at the Spirit Rock Sister Center, IMS in Massachusetts, and was offered the people who the doctors had given up on. As uh, and what his methodology was is to be mindful of the painful sensations, as opposed to trying to get away from them, that the act of getting away from them reactively, reactively getting away, trying to get away from unpleasant sensations tended to solidify the sensations, make them appear in our mind as more monolithic and more fearsome than they were before. And by paying attention to the painful sensations, I hope you're with me, by paying attention to the painful sensations, to be able to recognize that they're momentary and that, they're, that they flash on and off. And by being able to learn to accommodate the painful sensations uh, develops a both courage, strength, and an understanding that, the, the, that it, the painful sensations may be inevitable. In fact, the chronic sensations may be inevitable, but the suffering about them depends much more on the reactivity than the pain itself. So what mindfulness does is it works with our reactivity by turning toward painful sensations. Now, if I just say turn toward painful sensations, it's not quite nuanced enough. Because often, because we are in the habit of having our painful sensations associated so much with reactivity, with the compounded reaction of pain and then suffering, mental suffering, we're so used to that, that at first, by turning toward the painful sensations, we can't stay very long because our mind will go into its chronic reactions. And so it's almost like getting re-traumatized. So we, the way we approach it in mindfulness practice is we touch into it just for a moment, but don't enforce in our mind the idea, I have to stay there. We touch into it, see if we can make a little space for it, 
But then if we notice that we're starting to tighten up or react to it, that we either turn toward our reaction, the mental state that we're reacting, away from the pain for a moment, toward the mental state, or, in fact, this is probably more useful initially, or we consciously do move our attention away. We don't distract ourselves. We stay conscious. We don't go unconscious. We take our attention and move it to some sensation in our body that we can accommodate more easily. Because in the midst of, it's just like when you, if your hand has been hammered, all your attention goes to, the, to that pain. And you may forget that 99% of your body doesn't hurt at all. It's the same when we fixate totally on the, on the miseries of the world. We forget there are millions of people that are, doing, that are marvelous, doing marvelous things. We think it's all, the sky is falling. And so by shifting attention to something that you can accommodate more easily, some pleasant sensation, you actually remind yourself, oh, the whole, the whole world is in a monolith of pain. And so it doesn't compound as much. We regain our composure, and then we titrate. We go back and forth, visiting that painful sensation, and then knowing that we're completely free to shift our attention away. But the key ingredient is we're staying conscious. We're not just checking out. The checking out is a kind of reactivity that ultimately makes it harder to be with painful sensations. So we move toward, but with some understanding that it takes time to get used to that, being able to accommodate them. Please. So would you say to just follow your breath, or if, you're, if there's no pain in your big toe, to focus on your big toe, and then move back and forth from where the pain is to where the pain is not? If there's no pain in my big toe, to focus on my... I'm not sure what you mean by that. Yeah, in other words... The how-to of the how -to shifting is to your focus of attention to a place in your body where there isn't pain. Yeah, the how-to would be to the if if there's something calling, some pain calling you, you touch into it. Then you can either shift back to the breath if that's a, a neutral or pleasant place, or you can just shift to your, something more neutral like your rear touching the cushion, some kind of touch point, something that's very much here, very much embodied. And there's usually some sensation that you can find in your body that's not so that's not so associated with reactivity, and you just hang there for so you regain your composure. Then you go visit that area of pain again and see if you see if it may not even be there because so much of the pain gets associated with the reaction that when there's no reaction in the mind, the pain is often eases up. That's something we don't know if we're not in the habit of at least exploring the world of sensations. You had, you had your hand first, and that, I, I'm go, going to come to you second, the person with the hood, and, but you first, right here with this fellow here in the black jacket had your hand up right almost simultaneously with the woman in pink. Okay? So I think the most difficult part for me is that I'm not naturally good at you're no, not naturally what? Good at mindfulness. Like, and I use good well, no one who no hasn't practiced it is naturally good. So I think the, <laughs> the most difficult part is that I, you know, when my mind wanders, I begin to judge myself as being bad. And I understand that that's, there's no such thing as being bad at mindfulness. <laughs> no. But it's, regardless, even if you understand that, I think, uh, you know, I naturally become judging of myself, even though I can understand 
there's no such thing as bad, but the, the judgmental thoughts of well, not being you good judge at yourself them. based on a lack of understanding, not on. It, you may have a chronic habit of judging yourself and just you know issue shopping for things you can judge yourself about, and we could do that with anything and do it with meditation. But more often than not, we judge ourselves for our mind wandering because we actually think that we are the cause of our mind wandering. We actually don't recognize that, that the wandering mind is just conditioning. It's just something that's happening all by itself. And even waking up again and being mindful also happens by itself. And that it's a, that it's a selfless process. But it, so we take it personally when we think that there's a little agent in there saying, now wander off and now come back. But no one's ever seen that little agent in there. And that's part of the insight knowledge that grows in meditation, that thoughts and, and mindfulness is conditioned. And if mindfulness doesn't show up with thoughts, you just drift off. If mindfulness shows up with a thought, you notice, oh, the thinking mind. Mindfulness is something that sometimes is there and sometimes it's not. What we're doing is we're encouraging this, what's called a mental factor called mindfulness, to show up more often. And unless it's well-trained in showing up, it, thoughts will come and mindfulness just doesn't go along for the ride. And so it has nothing to do with a person. It has to do with conditioning. So if, so if we believe that there's a little agent that's in charge of all of that, uh, in charge of our conditioning, we'll judge ourselves. But the more you practice, the more you'll see that, oh, mindfulness showed up there. Oh, mindfulness didn't show up. Or the thinking mind's thinking, and did, oh, who's thinking? Oh, the thinking mind just think, thinks all by itself. I sit there quietly, I'm attending the breath, and this flywheel of, you know, somebody, someone said we have 65,000 thoughts that come every day. You think there's some little agent saying, now let's have 65,000 thoughts? Those thoughts we recognize as we practice, those thoughts are their own thinkers. They think themselves. They arise uninvited and they fade away. It's just discharge. It's electronic or electrical, I should say, <laughs> not electronic. So, so the more you understand that, the judging mind, and I will say the one thing that happens over the course of people's practice, the, the number one anecdote I'll hear, oh, I'm, not, I'm much less judgmental than I used to be. Because you start to see that it, it's not your fault. As my friend Wes says, you're not your fault. You know, you, even the fact that you're here is the result of so many non-personal conditions. You know, and, that, and that's beginningless in a way. So the, more, the wider your view, the less you'll judge yourself in general. The narrower your view, the more you personalize everything, the more you'll judge yourself. And that widens as you practice. So I th I'm really happy that you named that because you're not alone. Most of us take mo almost everything personally and don't realize that, that things are mostly conditioned selflessly. So in the person in the black, in the brown hat. I think that's courageous. What's that? I think it's courageous. To yeah, say courageous to say, to say what yeah, courageous to say that you're judging yourself. Yeah, it's wonderful. His, Please. Qu his question kind of touched on, on what I was thinking about, but I'm, I was thinking that the stories that my mind is talking about all the time, it's, it's crowded, you know? Is what? It's crowded. 
It's crowded. So I guess you mean many, many prop, yeah, many it's, stories. It's not yes, just, it's really repetitive. The stories in my mind are pretty repetitive. There's not a lot of new stories in there. <laughs> so, you know, we call that what we call that is the top ten tunes. <laughs> right. So I, um, what I'm curious about is imagination. So let's suppose I start doing this and I become more and more mindful. Yeah. Will my imagination be stimulated? There, I really appreciate the question. It is very common that the more we open the doors of perception, kind of widen our view, the more we realize the present is like a, a field of creative possibility. And people will, their creativity and their, their flights of imagination, their, their, vision, their vision for things, their insight about things just flourishes, everything. So yeah, your imagination can, can do whatever it does, but the difference is, is that, you, is that the, there is much more tendency for mindfulness to go along for the ride. And so mindfulness is what prevents that from becoming, uh, for you becoming completely lost in it. But more of the, you bear witness to this amazing creative uh, expression. I wanted to go back though to your to your um, comment about the, the repetitive themes. And this, will, this is a little sneak preview on this afternoon, but, but the, um, the repetitive themes that I think most of us carry around tend to be affected by our, our inability or just lack of practice at learning how to be mindful of and accommodate our underlying emotional life. So we tend to, not just you, but everyone, we tend to live in the, the narrative, in the secondhand version of some underlying feeling. And so sometimes, especially if a story or a problem is repetitive, it usually has an engine. There's usually an underlying field of moods and emotions that haven't been metabolized or accommodated because we haven't known how to stay mindful and stay in our body. The world of our emotions are often a little frightening to us because they're so, speaking of selfless, they're so out of control in a way. They do themselves. So our habit is to move immediately into the narrative. And so what we do in our practice is we try to be very gracious with those repeating themes, but we use it as a signal to just expand beyond that little narrative and see what the felt experience is. What's What's the... And there may just be some sensations, but there may be some kind of mood or emotion. And often, if you can accommodate and then metabolize that mood or emotion, it tends to render the, the repetitive themes a little less persistent, a little less invasive. So that's why we really want to uh, include our body, even as we're noticing the, the different uh, repetitive stuff. And as I said, just with your imagination, as you open, you'll feel everything. Everything will show up. So any last comments before we take lunch? Over here, please. Whoop. A race to the, with the mic. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> um, I have young children, six and eight. Lucky you. Um, yes. <laughs> um, what suggestions do you have for, um, for practicing with them and cultivating the practice with them? Uh, I would say, the, as a parent of a 12-year-old, 
and a, um, uh, I'll just speak for myself. I just try to practice myself and don't try to get them to practice. <laughs> I just try to model what my values and what my attention is and, uh, and let it be a little bit more osmosis and then let teachings and practices come out in just little more not informal vignettes rather than impose any idea about them practicing unless they actually show an interest. Uh, I just think that it's, um, it's just better to model at that age than, uh, than try to influence. That's my simple answer. It's a, maybe a longer conversation, but anyway, I so appreciate everyone staying with the morning and hearing all the words, and hopefully we'll cook a little bit more this afternoon. We will include m much more about working with mental states. I, I gave a little sneak preview at the end of the sitting about any of you waiting for the bell to ring. So that this is a mental state that we can start to be mindful of that functions a lot in our life that often keeps us from enjoying the moments that we have while we're, because we're often postponing our relaxation till the bell rings or the day ends or the weekend comes or the vacation comes. And so to be able to attend to those kinds of, of <coughs> mental states is, a, is, a great, um, is greatly liberating. And we'll talk more about other moods and emotions, thoughts, images, and also about the importance of the, the unifying of uh, love, loving-kindness, and mindfulness, sometimes called kindfulness, and how, how that's really what we're, we're training and is very central in the development of well-being and happiness, uh, at least according to the Buddha. And you, you have to find for yourself. So we do have lunchtime, but before we take lunch, I just we generally do this little wrap at this time of the day. And even though it's maybe it deserves a lot more time, but I but we put it in now, and it's just so much a central part of our tradition here at Spirit Rock and and the tradition of Dharma in general that uh, it's put in a you know it's it's actually it's the it's talking a little bit about dana. Dana is our often translated as generosity, but it really means gift. It's gifting, it's, uh, it's practicing generosity in the form of gifting. And, and that is the way that we run here at Spirit Rock, believe it or not, uh, because you did pay something to come here today, but what you paid actually covers about 70% or so of what it actually costs for you to be here. And the other 30% other people have offered to the operating budget of Spirit Rock, the campaigns that that people give to Spirit Rock, practice their giving and generosity so that people can be here for a price that is, is accessible to as many people as possible. And whatever you offered that covers part of what you, that it costs to be here, none of that ever goes to the, up to this point anyway, the, the model of, of, the financial model here is probably going to change for, there to be, for it to be sustainable in the future with the new center, etc. But up to this point, nothing of what you give uh, goes toward the person who's offering the teachings. So I offer, as my practice of dana, the teachings, as they have been offered freely for 26, 2,700 years. And for those years, 2,700 years, 
those who offer freely are supported, their requisites, their needs are supported by the people who receive teachings. And that's the, that wheel of giving and receiving is how the teachings have been carried on heart to heart, mind to mind for all this time. And there's never been, they're given freely because they're considered priceless. Two, so they're accessible to as many people as possible, regardless of their resources. And third, because the Buddha had a central emphasis on the, the happiness and joy-inducing effect of practicing generosity. And so encourage people to, not just with what we call teacher dana, but to, in every possible way in one's life, in every possible impulse, to extend one's heart by being generous. And, to, and he said, if you knew how important this quality of generosity is, to cultivate and what a cause of joy it is. You wouldn't let a single meal pass without sharing it. And it's something that you can grow in and verify for yourself that there is joy in the thought of being generous. There's joy in the act of being generous and joy in the memory of having been generous. And so it keeps on giving and it gives to both the giver and the receiver, and, or not just the receiver, but the giver as well. And it's something that we can all do every day. But the way it works in this context is that I, as my practice of generosity, offer the teachings, love as much as I'm able to, and then for you to consider uh, going into your heart and if you can, uh, if you are able to and are inclined to, to practice generosity, to feel, to practice, to give so that it actually feels generous. Uh, and to, to consider that when you do offer teacher dana, in this case, you're actually not just offering it to me, you're, you're offering it to the next group that I'm, you're actually paying it forward. You're offering it, making it possible for me to keep doing this. And that's literally how the teachings have carried on all these years, is by each person carrying, paying it forward and knowing that, that it is an, it's a relationship. It's not just a fee for service. It's not a tip. It's not just reaching in your pocket. It's saying, I want to engage in this relationship with these teachings and this practice so that others, so that it just becomes part of a, a, a continuous stream. Otherwise, if, the very simple fact is if, if we're not taken care of, we can't keep offering. And if, if we're taken care of, if you take care of me, I take care of you. And it's, it's very simple. Uh, but it is a little odd because we mostly live in a fee-based service, ba or fee-for-service model. And so to consider a gift from the heart and to extend oneself in that way so that it feels generous, is a, it's a different thing. And it's usually in different lives, at different parts of our life, it may come spontaneously at different times, but it's not something that we generally make as a conscious practice. And so that's what the encouragement is here. And that's partly why that element of the teaching was kept for so long in the way the teachings have been offered in the West, so that people could be trained in that habit of thinking in terms of generosity. So thank you in advance for your generosity. Thanks for the morning of practice. Please be mindful as you eat. Remember the doorway to well-being and happiness is to stay where you are. And that means to, there's so much going on in the unfolding present that you don't want to miss your meal trying to get to the next bite, which we tend to do, get into the helicopter, 
to get to the end of the meal. What, all our mind that's toppling forward, we want to use, we want to use everything today to settle back into the moment. Okay, so enjoy your lunch. We, it, is a, a rel- it is generally meant to be a silent day. I didn't say this at the beginning, but if you do need to speak with somebody or didn't know it was a day of silence, uh, please try not to interrupt anyone else's solitude with your conversation. Anyway, enjoy. See you in one hour at, at, um, at 2 o'clock, or just before 2 o'clock. More to come. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.